We began to study last week the second half of chapter 3 in Proverbs, and it contained for us the fourth lesson from the Father to the Son. You recall that's kind of what we're looking at in these first nine chapters of Proverbs. They are letters from Solomon to his son uh, to train him to grow in wisdom, to go after wisdom, to seek wisdom, to hold on to his teachings, to hold on to his commandments, to do them because there he'll find life. And in this particular lesson, which is the fourth lesson here, the father wants the son to see that wisdom rewards those who seek her. Wisdom rewards those who find her, who hold on to her, who treasure her, to see, who see her as precious above all things. And that wisdom generally pays off in this life. But ultimately, it will pay off big in the next. And that's important as we focus our attention now to this last section of the third chapter of Proverbs. Hear the words of the living God, Proverbs three twenty one through 35. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror. Or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence. And will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. When it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor. Go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it. When you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor. Who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. These are the words of the living God. As we mentioned last week, this uh, last section of Proverbs chapter 3 is actually four poems. Four little mini poems that at some point uh, were edited together, were put together to comprise this fourth lesson from the father to the son. Those first three poems, we looked at the first two last week, serve to motivate the son in regards to how wisdom is going to reward him. If he gets her, if he seeks her, if he holds on to her. And the fourth poem is really going to be the lesson itself that the father's teaching the son, specifically on how to be a good neighbor, right? What that means and how to avoid God's judgment and receive the blessings, grace, and favor of the Lord. Now, Similarly to what we looked at at the first poem of last week, when we looked at verses 13 through 18, uh, we talked about a literary device called the inclusio. Uh, that particular poem starts with the word blessed and ends with the word blessed. Right? So that's the important concept of that poem. Everything in between those, sandwiched in between those two words or in, in between two phrases, serves to support and expand and enhance 
uh, or define further those particular words that kind of bookend that particular section. And here in verses 21 through 26, we have another inclusio, which shows us that this is its own distinct uh, unit itself here. And it, the inclusio is around the phrase that contains the word keep. Keep. You see it there in verse 21, right? My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom. And then at the end of verse 26, right? The Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. If the son keeps the Lord's wisdom, the Lord in turn will keep him. And that's the point that Solomon is trying to make to drive home to his son. Keep the Lord's wisdom. He will keep you. Now, all of the exhortations to keep the Father's teaching are going to be motivated by these future promises uh, of security that you're going to see uh, in this particular section. These are them in in the future tense here. Will be life for your soul. You will walk on your way securely. Your feet will not stumble. You will not be afraid. Your sleep will be sweet. The Lord will be your confidence. The Lord will keep your foot from being caught. Now, the standard formula is found here, right? It wasn't at the beginning of this section, but we see it here, right? He's addressing his son. My son, do not lose sight of these. A, A strong exhortation, right? Don't lose sight. That means they're always to be before him. There's, there's not a point in his walk in life that he should set aside these principles, set aside these teachings and these commands. He must be diligent to look after them. They must not be neglected. Got to take him with him everywhere he goes. No single detail in his life needs to be overlooked as it concerns this element of wisdom's teaching. It is a matter of life and death for him. Verse 22 says, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Think about that phrase, life for your soul. Now, when we think of the word soul, uh, immediately we begin to think about the mind, right? Uh, The intellect, the will, uh, the Greek, from the Greek, right? Psyche, right? We think of those, the mind and thoughts, things that drive the particular actions in life of an individual. But, But soul in the Old Testament has a, a, a different meaning. It gives a different understanding. Uh, in the Old Testament, soul refers to the passionate drives and desires, the appetites of a living creature. Passionate drives and desires, passionate appetites of a living creature. Those could be appetites like when we talk about hunger for food, or it could be sexual drive, or other types of Uh, desires, strong desires. In fact, that word that is translated here, soul, in the Hebrew is literally the word for throat, the throat itself, which is why the Father says here now, if you keep sound wisdom and discretion, it's life for your soul, but it's also what? Adornment for your throat, for your appetites, for your desires, for your inclinations. If you keep, in essence, uh, wisdom and get wisdom and hold on to his teachings, that will keep sinful desires in check. It will keep him from being mastered by carnal appetites. That's why when we look at at 
And when we're going to start seeing things about greed in the Bible, you're going to see it tied to this aspect of the throat, right? The greedy person, right, has these, these strong desires, these strong appetites, right? The gluttonous person is mastered by a strong appetite <clears throat> for food, right? Uh, so we're going to see that particular aspect of the soul in relation to desires, drives, and appetites uh, in Proverbs itself. Now, in verses 23 and 24, you see it says, then, then, there is a conditional promise and reward of wisdom here. His walk will be secure and his foot will not stumble. Why? How does he get this reward? Well, of course, we've already seen it, by holding on to the Father's teaching, right? Let it be an adornment around his neck, all of these things, right? If he holds on to it, all of his waking life will have some sort of security in view here. Not only that, he's going to have security when he lies down at night. And this is the reward I want you to see here in regards to wisdom. Wisdom rewards with security. Think about this. A refreshing, restful, and peaceful night's sleep with no fear of dread. Who wouldn't like to have that? Who wouldn't like to experience one night's sleep like that? To have security at all times as you walk on the way of life, and then when you put your pillow down, your head on the pillow down at night. That is security for all of life. How is that even possible? How do we attain such a thing? Well, verse 25 and 26 leads us in that direction. No need to fear sudden terror or the judgment that comes upon the wicked. Why? For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being, what? Caught or captured. The Lord. The Lord is the cause for us to walk in security in every aspect of life and have this kind of sleep that is described here, a worry-free sleep. The Lord then is the hidden source of our, uh, of our sure-footedness, right? He, he's the hidden source that is providing this kind of security to the one who keeps sound wisdom, who fears the Lord, who trusts in the Lord with all their heart and holds on to the teachings of his word. Keep sound wisdom and she will keep you safe and secure. Keep the Lord's word, and he will keep you. Isn't this what parents want for their kids? To walk in this kind of security in life, where the Lord is watching over them and keeping them and making sure that they are secure? And who doesn't want this for themselves? Like, I want this in my life, continually. Brothers and sisters, we are in a cruel, harsh, right, unforgiving world. A very difficult world to, to navigate our, our faith and, and, and just to do the stuff of life, right? It's a grind. It's a challenge. It's hard. So what an incredible promise we find here that when we hold fast to wisdom, which we've already said, is wisdom a thing? No. Wisdom is a person, right? Wisdom is Christ. If we keep to Christ, if we hold to Christ, if we keep on the wise path, we won't get tripped up. We won't stumble. We will be sure-footed because it is the Lord who is the hidden source of our 
sure-footedness. Now, how does this work out? How does wisdom reward us with this kind of security? How, does, how do we ensure we have this kind of good night's rest that is mentioned here? Well, first and foremost, something we've mentioned in the past. We said it last week in, in, in regards to how to live the blessed life. What, what does wisdom do? Keep you from making the mistakes that will cause you not to have that kind of life. So here, wisdom uh, uh, keeps us from doing the foolish things that keep us up late at night, and worrying. That's how. Think about it. When you do foolish things in life, when you make poor decisions, when things are crumbling around you because you didn't get wisdom, you chose the path of folly, what do you do? You toss and turn at night. Your mind is just going and going and going. There's anxiety. There's worry. There's insecurity. There's all sorts of things. You don't know how you're going to fix this. You don't know how it's going to work out. There is no refreshing sleep. There is no peaceful rest. Wisdom preserves you on your way as you avoid the things that can trip you up and cause you to stumble. When you live according to to God's word and God's way, you don't live in a way that makes you worry about getting found out or getting caught. If you're living some hidden lifestyle of sin, then that's a reason to not be able to rest at night. What are you worried about? Getting caught. Being found out. You know, you're living a certain way in your life and and you're worried that when people really see what you're all about, they're not going to like you too much. That'll keep you up at night. That causes worry. That causes anxiety. When you avoid the foolishness of sin, your conscience is clear and your mind is free from anxiety and worry. How beautiful that is. Think about how wisdom helps us in our uh, relationships. When we're following the way of wisdom and we're living in right relationships with people, then that, right, then our sleep is peaceful. Isn't the worst thing, man, when you know there is just something off in a relationship because we haven't been following the way of wisdom here and, and things are bad with an individual and it's just going to bed, you're just like nauseous, you're sick to your stomach. Because you're like, i got to deal with things. I don't know how to deal with this thing. I don't know how to fix this relationship. I don't know how to approach that person. Well, wisdom helps you in these areas. Helps you to avoid, first of all, these kind of things in life. And when you're living on wisdom's way, on, in wisdom's path, your sleep is sweet. Your sleep is pleasant. That's not to say there aren't things we are concerned about in life. But they don't consume you. They don't consume you. But you know how that is. When things are off, like everything's off. And you can't rest. You're not at rest during the day. And you certainly aren't at rest during the night. Wisdom gives you peace of mind in this world. And how much do we need that peace of mind? Peace of mind. It's a blessing and reward of wisdom. Again, wisdom is a person. It's Christ. A reminder that you and I cannot do these things perfectly. We can't. We, we can only keep sound wisdom and discretion insofar as we keep that through Jesus Christ. Looking to Him who is the obedient and perfect Son of God. Who is the, the giver of this life. Who is life true. Life for our soul. And in Him is where we have safety and security. And we know 
because of that, because we're in Christ, because that's whom we're looking to and, and trusting in, we know that these things are generally true now, but they will ultimately be true later. Wisdom will reward us with eternal security in Christ Jesus. Don't lose sight of that as we're going through these things and you're like, this is an impossible list of things to keep and do. Yes, it is. This is why we can't rely on our ability to keep these things. We trust in Christ who kept these things for us. Amen? Don't forget that as we go through this, right? Because when you hear these things, it becomes a weight on you if you're not looking to Christ. It's going to become an impossible burden to follow these things and do all of these things. You're like, i got to get wisdom. Again, we're trying to pursue it. It's like a thing we do. And if we do, then we get and we forget all about Jesus. That we already have these things in him because he possesses all these things. In him are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he is the one we continually will point to. And we're not going to get sick of doing that. You're going to hear it week in and week out so you don't lose sight of this truth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's look at the next thing here. Wisdom rewards you with right inclinations. Now, there's a transition we start seeing here towards practical uh, applications to the Father's teaching in this section here. While the Son is motivated to obey the teaching by the promise of wisdom's reward, along the way, he's going to find that there are people that he's going to encounter, good people that he needs to help, who may be in need. And it's true for us, right? In our way, we encounter people that we need to help who are in need. And our vertical relationship with the Lord is going to impact our horizontal relationship with others. That's why it's important to be in right relationship with God, fearing the Lord, because it helps us relate rightly to others, especially those who are in need of help. Now here, uh, what Solomon's going to talk about in these practical applications is, in essence, exhorting his son on what it means to be a good neighbor. And he's going to do that a couple of different ways as we talk about here. Um, But let's define neighbor to start off here. Uh, The the first one doesn't use that phrase, but we, we see it immediately brought up in 28, do not say to your neighbor. But that is connected to 27, so the idea is the same for both, right? And it's important to define neighbor because we have a modern context when we think about who a neighbor is or who is our neighbor, right? If you recall that famous parable, right, the, the, the young man wanted to know who is my neighbor. And then Jesus begins to explain to him who his neighbor is via a parable here. Uh, but let's define it because uh, we have to understand this in the context in which this was written. This is not written in, uh, for our times, right? This was written to... Solomon's son, who was part of ancient Israel, right? So the Old Testament is going to drive our understanding for this. When we hear the term neighbor now, we think of people who immediately live next door to us, right? That's the common way of understanding. It's the person to my left, it's the person to my right, behind me, or across the street uh, from me. People who are in my immediate vicinity, maybe in my block or subdivision, And more broadly, we apply this term neighbor to think of the people that we come into contact with in our day-to-day life. It might be your co-workers. It might be your 
classmates. It might be people that are on your sports team. It might be the barista at your favorite coffee shop, the, the cashier at the uh, store you frequent, right? It might even be the homeless person that you pass by every day on your way to home or to work or, or somewhere else, right? We, we generally use that as a broad term to define those. Now, in evangelicalism today, it's been redefined to mean just about whatever you want it to mean, right? Anyone, anywhere, doing anything, strangers, our enemies, right, and all of that stuff. Now, that definition uh, is not what the Bible has in view when it comes to this concept of, of neighbor and how to be a good neighbor itself. To an Israelite, which was the original audience of Proverbs here, the term neighbor meant something very specific. The word was used in reference to close friends, companions, a beloved person, acquaintances, the people of their community. These were not unknown individuals or just anyone anywhere. They were people personally known to them in some degree or capacity. Now, you and I barely even know the names of the people who live next to us. If I were to ask you, name four neighbors around you, some of you might be hard-pressed. And it's not necessarily your fault, right? You don't even see the people who live around you. We don't see any of our neighbors. Every now and again, I'll see one cutting his lawn in the backyard or driving in and then, you know. But we don't generally know those things, much less know specific things about their families and their lives and those particular things. But that's not the case with ancient Israelites. Their neighbors were part of their tribe. Their neighbors were extended family members. They, they lived in close-knit communities, so they weren't strangers to them. They shared things between themselves. Their kids played together. They dined at each other's homes. Someone made an observation in a message I was listening to recently of how when you think about the story, right, of when, when Jesus was gone for three days, right, and Mary was like, after three days, where's Jesus? Did you ever stop to think, why didn't she think about that after day one? Like there was no concern. Where's Jesus? Day two, like it wasn't even on her mind. By the third day, she's like, okay, this is kind of weird. Where's my kid? I hope you guys would not wait as long, right, if your kid wasn't home, right? But why is that? Well, who were they with? Family and friends. Lots of people. They were with a large group of people, but those people were known to them so much that Jesus was somewhere around there. (laughs) At least that's what she thought, right? She has to be with family and friends, so it's okay. It's all good. These are people known to us, right? Uh, So that's an interesting way to understand this aspect of what it means to be a neighbor, all right? Um, So this is not a generic catch-all term is the point I'm trying to make here. Uh, Jesus further defines who our neighbor is there in Luke 10 as someone we encounter and is in need of our help. So look at these four quick practical applications that Solomon gives his son because they're the outworking of how wisdom rewards by helping us relate rightly to our neighbors and giving us proper inclinations or motivations to treat them as we should. And helps us to see these things rightly and do them rightly and have the right motivations for them. Right? Ultimately, in Proverbs here, when we are talking about a wise person, we're talking about a righteous person, one who fears the Lord. So this righteousness 
works its way out and benefits others. Now, verse 27 and 28, let's take a look at that one first. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. These first two are going to be classified as sins of omission. Sins of omission, right? Omission from omit, right? They're things good that should be done, but is not going to be done. Good that you should do, but you don't do it, right? Do not withhold good. Withholding good. What kind of good is in view here that we are not to withhold? Well, it could be a lot of things, right? Immediately we think of financial help to someone, right? We need to help someone pay their bills. Um, Maybe they're in in some particular need of of food or clothing or groceries or some practical benefit in a given situation. Uh, It could extend to even an action um, such as the administration of justice, Uh, towards an individual, which the Old Testament talks a lot about, and so does Proverbs, or again, any general help to the needy. The psalmist says, do not withhold good from whom? From those to whom it is due. Now, that's interesting, because the implication is here, there, there are people who are deserving of good, of good being done to them. That in some way they have a moral claim on our good graces, a moral claim on our assistance and help. Now, if if you go through the Old Testament law, you're going to see that there are tons and tons of uh, illustrations, examples, and things God commanded his people in how to take care of one another. Uh, and how this is to live out, how you do good to others to whom it is due. For instance, Deuteronomy twenty-three nineteen. just read this uh, on your own time, but you could not charge your brother interest. If you loaned him money, you could not charge him interest. It was forbidden in God's law. It had a moral claim on your being able to help them financially by virtue of the fact that they're your brother. They're your brother, right? They're a fellow Israelite. But to the foreigner, you could charge interest. You see, a distinction is being made there. One deserves that kind of good of a no-interest loan, and the other does not. Leviticus 25, if your brother becomes poor and sells himself to you, kind of like an indentured servitude, guess what? The law says you cannot treat them like a slave. you got to treat them like a hired worker to totally different classifications and categories. Leviticus 19, at the time of the harvest, right? You went in to reap from all your fields, right? But what you could not do was reap all the way to the edge. You had to leave some out there, and you even had to leave the stuff that fell on the ground for whom? For the poor, for the needy, for the widows, for the orphans, right? They needed to be taken care of. They had a moral claim on your good graces and assistance, right? By virtue of God's law there. Really important. Now, it also says when it is in your power to do it. That means you're not obligated to give what you do not have. It has to be in your power to do it. Someone asks you to do something that you just cannot do, how are you going to fulfill that? Even if there is a moral claim, you don't have it. If someone needs $500 and you don't even have five bucks, it's going to be kind of hard to do that, right? You know, even in, in the New Testament, right, Galatians 6.10, here's how Paul uh, exhorts us. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those of the house of faith. As we have opportunity, right, we don't always have the opportunity. We don't always have the ability. It's not always in our power to do. 
If a stranger asks you to put up security, uh, put yourself up as security for them, right? To co-sign a loan for them, for their car, for their home. I think you'd be cautioned against doing that, right? Even if it's in your power to do it, right? Wisdom would dictate that's just a dumb thing to do. All right. So don't put guilt on yourself for not doing what you do not need to do. There's a lot of people out there in evangelicalism, especially the progressive strand, who wants to guilt you into doing things, right, that you're not called to do scripturally, right? And it's not an imposition that the Lord is laying upon you. So release yourself from that kind of guilt. But what does this look like for us, right? The the person who has need, right, don't withhold doing good to those to whom good is due if it's in your power to do it. But generally, right, the, the concept is simple, it's especially if we define neighbor as those who, whom we know, who are closest to us, but especially, as Paul says to the Galatians, especially to those of the household of faith, the general principle is when someone has a need, we supply that need. It's in our power to do it. That could be someone needing help with, with moving, Right? It could be something like, like I said earlier, paying a utility bill for someone. Maybe their hours were cut at work. Maybe the bonus they were expecting didn't come through, and now there's an, a, a financial need, and, and if it's in our power to help them, we do that. Cooking a meal for someone who is sick. Right? I love when, when our ladies mobilize here to help those in those situations when they're going through something by providing general assistance here, helping clean, clean someone's house. Loaning out tools to someone who needs them for a project. If you're an employer, right, you, you're not to withhold good from your employees. That means, in general, pay a fair wage, good wage, a generous wage. If, you're, if your employee needs to be out for a certain amount of time for a legitimate reason, do everything in your power to help them in these situations. When you hire a service professional or a vendor, make sure you pay them on time. That's important. That's important. Sometimes it can be something as simple as this. Someone just needs you to listen to them. Their need is that they have a burden and they just need someone, maybe a a shoulder to cry on. Someone who can mourn with them. Someone who will listen to them. It might just be as simple as giving a word of encouragement to someone who needs to hear it. I'm just always astounded how simple this is and how few people actually exercise that. And when you see someone, to encourage them in, certain, in, in some way, a simple word of encouragement, how that lifts someone's soul and lifts their spirit. Okay, we, don't, we always try to think of these things and we think of the largest, biggest gestures of, of expressions of good, and it, it's not that at all. Sometimes it is, but, but it's not always that itself. Now, I want to address the fact that if you're the one who is in the position of needing help, that you be someone who is deserving of it. That it can be said that you actually have a moral claim uh, to someone's good graces and their assistance because it's do you. This is what I mean. If If you're in need of financial help, are you generally a good steward of your finances? And it just might be that you have more month left at the end of a paycheck. There's things that are unexpected. Or are you someone who is wasteful with your money? And you typically and generally spend more than you make. 
If that's the case, then really you're not, no one's really under the obligation to help you because you're just not a good steward financially. I know people don't like to hear this. Eh, sorry and not sorry. <laughs> if you're in need of generosity from someone, are you generally a generous person? Do you repay your debts on time? If someone does help you and it's a loan, and that's okay to do, again, we don't charge interest to brothers. Sometimes it is just that. Someone needs a little assistance and they'll pay it back. There's nothing wrong with doing that as long as that's the expectation and it's, and it's clear. Because there's nothing worse than someone who borrows money from you and they just never pay it back. They, they never even bring it up. And then all of a sudden they're sporting new clothes all the time, right? They're always getting new stuff, um, you know, and, and, and always going out to eat. and never, That's not good, right? And I think when you see those things, you go, oh, generally this is not a person that I'm going to assist because, again, they squander and they're not faithful in, ob- in their own particular obligations. Um, think about this in Proverbs, right? Uh, there are people in Proverbs that were not to help. You know who those are? The fool, the evil person, the wicked person, the lazy person, the sluggard. So see, it's not everybody. Not everybody's a neighbor that you help. Okay? This is why we need wisdom, right? Are you a person who returns things that you borrow quickly? That you borrow, then you return them quickly. Right? That could be money, but that could be anything else. Right? Our brother Todd, how many people borrow tools from you, Todd? Lots of folks, probably. Because you got everything. And if you do that, do you return it on time? I don't know if that's a word of the Lord for anybody. I'm just using that as an example. may not be the case, right? That's why I generally don't loan my books out. I don't know how many books are floating out there somewhere that have somehow never found their way back to me, to my library, you know. It's like people forgot where I live, you know, or something like that, <laughs> right? But are you someone who just, if you borrow something, that you make sure that you're attentive to say, I'm going to get it back to them. Do good when it is in your power to do it to those whom good should be done. Look what it says in 1 John three seventeen and 18. Look at this exhortation for us. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Boy, that's hard. <laughs> it is hard sometimes. Because we do close our hearts to the needs of others many times. For a lot of reasons. Selfish reasons. Right? We just don't want to help. We are indifferent. We don't care. We all fall short here. We're all guilty of this sin of omission. You know, we look away from the person in need and withhold good from them. James 4.17 says that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now we're talking, now we're in the realm of sin, aren't we? It's a serious thing. The wise person, the one who has wisdom, she's that person is rewarded, right, with, with right and proper inclinations to help others, right? They are attentive to the needs of others around them, especially in their church family. In fact, they're looking for opportunities to do good to those to whom it is due because it is in their power 
to do it. Be the kind of neighbor that everyone wants to have, right, because you're doing these particular things. Be that person. It's important. Verse 28, do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have it with you. Again, this is connected to what we just read there. Go in hand in hand. Here it is. Don't just withhold it. Don't delay in doing what you should be doing, doing good when you have the means to do it. Think about that phrase, go and come again tomorrow. Tomorrow. The favorite word of the procrastinator, right? I'll do it tomorrow. The favorite word of the idle person who doesn't like to be productive, I will get to it tomorrow. And in essence, you're doing the same thing here now with a brother or sister who's in need. You have the power to meet that need. You're to do good to them. And you're like, you know, can you check back with me next week? When you can do it, that moment, right? When you have it with you, right? That adds a certain layer of strength to this, this what he's saying here, right? Because in essence, it's calling you a liar. Because you have it with you, and you're just sending them off. Do it tomorrow. You make up some excuse in delaying the good that you should be doing to them when you could have done it immediately. Hey, I'm kind of busy right now. I can do it next week when you're not busy at all. Right? Ooh, ooh, I don't have any cash on me. I wish I could help you. Can you check back next pay period? But you're secretly hoping is that they'll move on to somebody else, right? Ask someone else, or maybe they'll forget, right? They won't remember that they asked you for help in a certain area. How often have we promised to do something for someone when we really had no intention of doing it at all? So we do these kinds of things. We make these kinds of excuses to not do good. Like this, this is a hard issue above anything else, right? It's a matter of our integrity. When people take us at our word, I mean, will people believe what we say in concerns of how we're going to help them? And when you say you're going to do something, you do it. When you commit to helping someone, you, you back it up with action. Not just be a talker. We got talkers for days. People who talk a big talk, you know. Oh, I'm going to do, I'm going to help, I'll be there, I commit. You know, but then when the time comes, you're looking around, where are they? That's not anybody here. That's another church. That's not here. Okay? Right? But, but that's all around us are people like that. Don't be that person, right? Don't be that person. Don't delay in doing good. And it's your power to do it when you have it with you. This is laid upon us, right? Because love mandates that. If we love one another, so we say we do, because right, like this is where this whole neighborly thing plays itself out. Yes, this applies to those outside of the household of faith also. But in here, right, amongst us, that we be people of our word, that we do what we say we're going to do, that we don't withhold doing good to one another, especially to the one that it is due. Verse 29, the third uh, practical application here. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not plan evil. Now, this is moves from that realm of the sin of omission to the sin of commission, right? Now, this is an in, in action here. This, this is doing wrong, doing something that is not good, right? It's premeditated in essence here, right? Planning implies that. This is an action that is thought through or acted upon, right? Now, the language here is kind of judicial in nature. 
Do not plan evil, in essence, means don't accuse your neighbor. Don't accuse your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you, right? Uh, especially if they haven't wronged you, right? It's a violation of God's law. Lots of laws. I can name a, probably one of the most important ones, right? The Ninth Commandment. It tells us not to bear false witness against our neighbor, right? Bring a false accusation, right? It's, that's a big deal. And, and here's the key, right? Who dwells trustingly beside you. A trust is absolutely indispensable and essential for uh, relationship, for uh, people to be in community with one another here. So here you have this neighbor that's living next to someone who's plotting some type of false accusation to bring against them, but this neighbor's dwelling trustingly beside them. Why? Because they haven't done anything wrong. There's no reason them to fear treasonous activity from their neighbor because they haven't wronged them in any way. Had they wronged them, then of course there would be a reason for them to worry, but here the indication is no, nothing wrong's been done. Now, when we think of this phrase, do not plan evil against your neighbor, you're like, I don't do this. Like, I have not sat out with a sheet of paper and said, how can I bring an accusation against so-and-so, you know? I haven't done anything wrong to me, but I don't like them. They smell, I don't know, whatever reason. But here's the key. We haven't plotted evil like this, perhaps. I hope you haven't. But we have done that in our heart. We've done that in our heart when we've desired harm to others, or we fantasized about them getting what we think they deserve. And didn't Jesus say that's really where murder is found, right? It's the action, the outworking of already something that's in the heart to murder, that accusation, that desire that someone gets what we think that they deserve. And again, they haven't done anything wrong, at least not by the accounts of what the word indicates here, but for some reason, maybe it's through jealousy or some other sinful reason, we desire ill of that individual. But we should never desire harm to another for no reason. We most certainly should never accuse someone falsely for no reason. We should never take a neighbor to court out of spite or to get even with them. 1 Corinthians 6, I mean, Paul explicitly talks about this in relationship to to what was happening inside a particular local church congregation where brothers were suing other brothers in the church and bringing these things before before, uh, the justice that shouldn't, that should have, things that should have been handled inside of the church, right? That kind of behavior should not exist among believers. But you have to check your heart in these aspects here. Are you desiring ill of someone who has not really harmed you in any way whatsoever? Verse 30, do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Again, another sin of commission. Do not contend. What does contend mean? It means to fight with, to quarrel, to dispute over a disagreement. We should not be fighting with or quarreling with someone who has not harmed us. Harmed us. There are some brothers and sisters in the church, again, not here, who are very contentious people. Very contentious people. And that's a serious heart issue. James chapter 4 gives us an indication where this emanates from. 
4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Again, that murder is in the heart. That coveting is in the heart, right? Two violations of God's law. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It comes from our own sinful desires. Quarreling, fighting. like That's all the internet and social media is today, right? Everybody's fighting with people who have not, they don't even know and who haven't really harmed them in any way. I don't know if you know this, but, but words on the internet on a post are not violence, all right? <laughs> they ain't going to kill you, all right? But we feel just the liberty to fight with people we don't even know, to murder and malign them with our words, right, in, in violation of what the Scripture tells us about this. Now, there are valid reasons to quarrel and to contend and dispute over things. I'm not saying that there, there aren't those things, but the Scripture tells us how to go about that. Sometimes there's genuinely evil things that have been done to us. Harm has been done to us. So there has to be quarrel. There has to be dispute, right? This has got to get resolved. But let me point you to something that written from Paul to, to Timothy, a pastor, an elder of a church, but it's good instruction for all of us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 23 and 26. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Right there is 99% of your internet engagement, all right? Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Look at that. Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, even when he's dealing with opponents. Like, he's got to bring correction. He's got to deal with these things, but he's to do it in a spirit of gentleness. Because the purpose isn't just to brawl, to duke it out, to win a fight, and to be right. The purpose is to lead an individual here so they come to their senses, come to repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Imagine if our engagement was like that with people. Instead of calling them names and telling them they're, they're stupid, they're bigoted, they're hateful, they're whatever, right? That it, it's driven with this motivation. But especially amongst believers here, we should not be quarreling. We should deal with things in the spirit of grace to lead people to repentance. Bottom line to these, right, is the golden rule that Jesus left for us. That's, that's all it is. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Right? That's fulfilling the law and the prophets right there. That whole second table of the law, right? things that deal with others there. What do you want people to do for you? What do you wish that people would do for you? Well, do that. Do that. Do that for them. That's what should drive us. Right? Love compels that from us. Lastly, wisdom rewards you with God's blessing, favor, and honor. This is the last poem and the last section. But it begins with this admonition to not envy a man of violence. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his 
ways. Do not envy a man of violence. And you're thinking, like, I don't envy violent people. Now, remember who this is written to, right? This is written from Solomon to a son, a young man here. And young men do have a bent towards brawling and fighting and violence. We saw that in the first letter to uh, the son, all the way back to chapter 1, uh, where, where Solomon is exhorting his son to avoid the violent gang, right? Avoid the enticement of sinners who, who do whatever it takes to get what they want, who are greedy for uh, unjust gain, who hurt anyone who gets in their way. Violence is ingrained in the human heart. You don't need to teach violence. I know there's things that reinforce that violent bent, but, but that's already part of the sin nature. That's in the human heart. I mean, you see that in little kids. I was watching a video here recently of these little kids. One was a toddler kicking and spitting at police officers. Now, again, yeah, were there environmental things there? But no, that's already in the heart. You ever see little kids go at it when one of the other kid takes their toy? Thank goodness that they're small and weak. Otherwise, they would take the other kid out, right? That's why God makes babies small so they don't kill their parents. The parents could still overtake them and overpower them. All right, that's already in the heart. You don't, you don't have to teach these particular things, right? <clears throat> it's there. You think of the example of Cain and Abel. What other violence had they seen? What other violence had Cain seen or witnessed? I mean, we're not even in any indication. We don't know how many other people. But, but this is listed in the scripture as the first murder, this first act of violence that takes a human life. That was a, that's in the heart. It's already there. We read the news, right? We see depictions of violence every single day, rioting, looting, people hitting others for no reason, right? You've watched those videos, right, of someone walking up to an old person in the street and decking them as hard as they can. Right? These are the kinds of things we see here. Now, Solomon's like, do not envy. Why? How do you envy a violent person? Well, he's telling them, don't envy, right? Don't associate with them. Don't desire what they have, what they do, don't love violence, don't love conflict, don't hate peace, don't walk in their ways, because this unrighteous person here, this is the unrighteous neighbor in view here, is the opposite of what the son is supposed to be. But the son might be tempted to envy the violent because the violent person here seems to get what they want. They seem sometimes to prosper and get away with their schemes. Sometimes it looks like doing evil causes you to win, causes you to have some type of success, even if it's short-lived. Sometimes in this fallen world, following the path of sin is the road to getting what you want in life. And then you say, and you start begin to evaluate, and you go, sometimes following wisdom doesn't seem to work out like you think it should. So the son might be tempted here, or you might be tempted even, to jealousy in adopting these ways because you see this apparent success and ease in life. But he wants his son to know this is not the end of the matter. Don't envy that person. Don't walk in their ways because here is how wisdom rewards those who have her. She bestows upon them the Lord's blessing, favor, and honor. Now, Solomon's going to do this now by contrasting Two types of people here uh, in, in, in these four little snippets that you'll see there. 
the devious and the upright, the wicked and the righteous, the scorners and the humble, and the, the wise and the fools. Okay? Now, the devious person, you, you see what he says there about the devious person here in regard to the person not to envy. But the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The devious person is an abomination to the Lord, right? That means that this person, this devious person is detestable to the Lord. The Lord hates, despises. Now, that word devious means crooked. The crooked person. That person is twisted. They are bent toward perversion and wickedness. And then you have the upright. That word means straight. So there's the contrast here, the play on words to depict this, right? The crooked person and the straight person. The crooked person, the one who devises evil, that does evil, the violent person, right? The one you're not supposed to envy, they're an abomination. God hates them. But the upright, the straight person, is taken into the Lord's confidence. I love this imagery. When you take someone into your confidence, what does that mean? You bring them into like your circle of trust. Your circle of confidence, your inner, like you're, they're, you're, they're, you're part of your inner circle. Things that you share with them and you share with one another. Isn't that what the disciples were to Jesus? There was times Jesus sat and it says the disciples came to him and then there's a, there's a large crowd there. There are tons of people and Jesus speaks in parables and then later on he takes his boys aside, right? They're his inner circle and he begins to explain to them what these parables meant. Then there was even three amongst the twelve that were even closer to Jesus and had a more intimate relationship with him. The Lord takes us in, in essence, as his confidants, right? That's beautiful. How do we get into the Lord's confidence this way? Ultimately, it's through his word. Ultimately, it's we're given insight and drawn into the divine counsel of God revealed to us in his word. It's the wise person, one who hides that in his heart and does it. Next, we have a contrast being drawn by from, uh, the house of the wicked and the dwelling of the righteous. Right? Where he says the, the house of the wicked is cursed. There's a curse upon it. But the dwelling, right, the dwelling of the righteous, right, um, that house is blessed. Right? Now, there's, there's a distinction. You think house and dwelling, that's the same thing. But it's not. Okay? It's not. House, the Hebrew word here, is for what we think of a structure. The physical box, right, that people live in. That's, that's the house there. But dwelling there is the word used for grazing. Like grazing in a pasture, right? So that's kind of the imagery that's being played for us here. Like a place where flocks go to feed and to lie down. Think of this 23rd Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures there. It's a similar word there for dwelling. So there's a curse on the house of the wicked. Even if in this life it looks like they're blessed, even if it looks like they're prospering, even if it looks like they have success, it's death and they're under a curse. But the righteous are in a place of safety and abundant provision. Why? They dwell with God. They dwell with God. And they may not look like they have success. The righteous may not look like they have much by way of material possessions. But it says that their dwelling is 
blessed. We are blessed because we are in Christ. And he dwells with us by his spirit. The last one here, the scorners and the humble now are contrasted. The scorner, the scornful person is the mocking person. And God hates the mocking person. Oh, you'll see there's various passages on this. But the scorner, it tells here, guess what they're going to get? Guess what their reward is? <clears throat> they're going to receive scorn from God. It's God setting himself against the scornful. Not a very pleasant place or position to be in. The Lord holds the mocker in derision. But to the humble, right, that is those who are not proud or boastful, those who are lowly, they receive the favor of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? The humble are those who know that they are wretched, poor, naked, and blind, fling themselves on the mercy of Christ. These are the ones that receive the grace and mercy and kindness and favor of the Lord. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will what? He'll favor you. He'll exalt you. He will lift you up. Lastly, the wise and fool are contrasted. The fool gets disgrace as an inheritance. That's their assigned possession. The will is read. Here's your inheritance, fool. Dishonor, shame, disgrace. The wise, they will inherit honor. Again, that word honor, we've looked at it before, means weight or heaviness. In essence, this this honor is is something of great value. That's what they inherit. But, But the fool, they inherit something that really has no weight, has no value whatsoever. That's what the fool gets, dishonor. And this is how wisdom rewards those who hold to her, who keep her, who follow after her, who possess her with the Lord's blessings, favor, and honor. Sometimes the evil and the wicked get what they deserve now. Like we pray for that, we hope for that. When, when there's injustice, when something wicked is done, right? We, we cry out for justice. We want to see it. And sometimes it happens, right? Sometimes they're punished now. And when that happens, that's a foretaste of the judgment that will come at the end of the age. Ultimately, the evil person, the wicked person, will get what they deserve. Not always now, but certainly at the end, they will be held accountable. And sometimes the righteous prosper now. Sometimes they have a blessed life now, right? There's general ease in life. They're living the good life as God intended, as we talked about last week. And when that happens, that's a foretaste of the glories to come in the new heavens and the new earth. But we know it doesn't always work out that way, does it? Sometimes the wicked, through the entire of their life, man, they've got it good. And sometimes throughout the entirety of some righteous person's life, it doesn't seem to like it's going well for them. This is why our trust isn't what our eyes are beholding right now concerning the wicked or concerning the righteous. Again, our trust and our confidence is that these things are generally true now, but ultimately they will all work themselves out and wisdom following Christ who is wisdom will mean that all of these things will work out in the end. That's where our confidence is. The wicked will be punished and the righteous will enter into their eternal rewards. 
Wisdom has its rewards, and that's motivation enough for us to, to follow God's word, to obey God's word, and do the things he commands us to do. And this is why Solomon presents these motivations to his son to follow after wisdom and to get wisdom. But all of these rewards are ours right now in Christ Jesus. Only he can make good on each one of these rewards and promises. And it is only by the power of his spirit that you and I can even hope to begin to walk any of these things out and do any of these things out to experience what it's talking about here. Ultimately, our eternal rest and security are in him. Ultimately, he is the only one who has done good, who can help us in our deepest and greatest need. Right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he made us alive in him. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant to what end? To lay down his life as a ransom for many. The curse of sin was broken, and in him we are blessed now with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When we talk about dwelling with him and, and our dwelling being blessed, well, he is our chief shepherd And in him we have perfect rest. In him we have this abundant provision of life and goodness that is talked about here. In him we have rest and refreshment so that we can lay our head down our pillow and experience this kind of blessed rest. Why? Because we have trusted in him. There is nothing more I add to this. There is nothing more I can do to have these beautiful things he's promised us. In him we have received grace and favor. So treasure wisdom, treasure Christ. Brothers and sisters, he is all you and I need.